good to see you. Hey, we got to say hi to the other campuses, don't we? Yeah, we do. Yeah, let's say hi, everybody. Hello over there, other campuses, online people. Glad you're with us. Hey, uh, before we get started, about 1,500 of us are already receiving these weekly Lenten devotionals by text. If you want to get in on that, here's how you do it. You just text that number uh, or that word Lent to 94062. And whoops, where are you going? Come back here. Um, and we'll send it to you. Just the words of Jesus every day, the way to start your day. And Jesus' words have changed the world. Let him, let him change you some more over the next few weeks from now till Easter. That's what's happening with that. Okay. So we're in this series celebrating our 200th birthday, right? And, and the, the, yeah, Jared said you have to clap every time. Not that time. Um, uh, we, we're calling it appropriately, I think, more and better to come. And it's kind of this behind-the-scenes look at um, all the things that kind of make mountain, mountain, like these values that we've latched onto and these godly principles that not only are true for our church, but they, each one of them are really important as a follower of Jesus for you and me at a personal level. So that's why they're cool, and I think they're interesting to look at. Um, would, it be, would, it be, would it be helpful if we reviewed those? Oh, yes. The overwhelming response is yes. So this is the last installment today. I thought maybe it would be good to kind of zip it back a little bit and review the mantras. We started by saying, man, the main thing has got to be to keep the main thing the main thing. Okay, because it's so easy for us to forget like even what we're doing or why we're here and play games at church and all that stuff. It's like we're not here to play games. We got a mission to do. Let's keep our mission first. You know, we're here, we're here for people who aren't even part of the church yet. Um, we're here to make more and better disciples, all right? And then we, we said, well, who are we then? Well, we're not a bunch of like self-righteous, pretty good, holier than thou's. You know what we are? We're basically broken people helping other broken people find the hope and the healing and the help and the wholeness that we found in Jesus. We're not like a collection of saints. We're a hospital of sin, for sinners, right? So that's, that's what we talked about second. And then after that, we, we had a week where we talked about how important it is to, to be a difference maker, like in our world, like to follow Jesus' example and to serve. And um, that was the weekend that we handed out some dollar bills, $100 bills to 130 people who took a special kingdom assignment. And they're about a third of the way through already. And we'll hear the rest of those stories as we go. But the reminder is, man, all of us, if you follow Jesus, you're on a kingdom assignment as well, as, I, as am I. We always all are on kingdom assignments. That's just how we live our lives with that kind of purpose. And then we talked about how in this day and age with so much ugliness and division and hateful separation and polarization, how important it is that we answer Jesus' prayer when he said, God, I, I pray that they would be one because unity really, really matters. And then we had a week where Jared kind of lost his marbles, if you were here. And, and uh, he talked about how, how in a world like ours, where, whether we're parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, anyone, where kids are so often neglected, abused, or made to grow up so fast or exploited, around here in our homes, in this church, we say, man, we love kids. And we're going to prove that by putting them as a priority in everything that we do. And then last week, we said, with whatever else is going on, don't become so distracted or discouraged that you miss the one that is above all, my king, I hope he's your king, it's all about Jesus. How many of you said that sometime during the week this week? Yeah, 
me to. The last one is today. It's the last installment. And uh, I thought before we jump in on that, it would be important to just pause for a moment and not just talk about mountain for 200 years, but I want to make sure we're really grasping that God is doing something really amazing in our midst right now. I don't want you to snooze through this. Because, listen, the sad reality is that the vast majority of churches in this country are plateaued or declining, like thousands will close their door this year. And yet at Mountain, we've we've got this something that's a special blessing from God that's happening in our midst right now. You guys, I want you to realize that. I mean, it's important. Every way we have of measuring is, is exciting right now. Um, like attendance is bursting. You, we had a little pandemic you might have heard about, but on the other side of that, there's like 7,000 people who are engaging every week, which represents about 33% growth year over year, our highest year over year growth in our 200-year history. It's crazy. <laughs> last 12 months, the last 12 months, we've seen over 2,200 people at our New Here stations. That's over like 40 guests every week saying, hey, how do I get plugged in? You know, we've had over a 1,000 people in the last year who are brand new, engaged, hungry to be involved. That's crazy. We had 556 baptisms, 15,000 people on our Easter uh, Christmas services saying, uh, uh, tell me about Jesus. That's what I'm here for. You know, it, it's great. Well, not everyone was here for that, but you get the idea. Um, so there's, there's so much going on. Kids ministry is flourishing. We had 70 kids dedicated, 65 more through Christmas services, and way more kids this year than last time at this year, uh, last year at this time. Student ministry, flourishing. Our largest ever group of kids went to camp, mix and move. A couple months ago, we had one night where 50 new kids showed up in one night. This is going to, so you know what? Statistics say that the age group in this country where people are walking away from God in the church the fastest and in the most numbers is young adults, Gen Z and even younger. But at Mountain, that's our fastest growing demographic. Because of Unleashed Love, y'all provided a pastor named Gil who's come and got some momentum. Just since Gil's come, we've had 97 baptisms among our young adults, and it's grown by 350%. Okay, so uh, Epicenter is rocking. Like last year, we served 11,000 people, including like 712 ex-offenders and their families, gave away a quarter of a million pounds of food and so much more. Um, Groups, there's more people in groups at Mountain now than has ever been in the history of our church, like connected to Jesus, rooted groups, you know, um, uh, trauma groups, uh, student groups, care groups, support groups, grief groups, addiction groups, uh, over 3,000 people around the Bible and around each other. And generosity is a good indicator of health. And we've had our most generous year of giving ever in our history, which means we're greenlighting more ministry. We're reaching more people, more impact. Worship is spirit-filled. Go trips are going. Difference makers are making a difference. God is blessing across four, soon to be, we hope, by God's grace, five campuses. Our elders and our leaders are united. Our staff is like talented and gifted and dedicated and the members of this church are on fire and God is unstoppable. I'm saying like you consider that Mount is in like in the top part of the top percentile of all churches in this country and you can't just look at all that and go, oh, you know, okay, so what's for lunch? I mean, it's like, you guys, something is going on. And so that leads us perfectly to the mantra that we've got to anchor in and live by that we intentionally wanted to end with today. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Take all that in because it's like, whoa, something going down here. And then here's the mantra. Put it on the screen. Say it with me. You ready? 
Stay humble. Stay hungry. Stay humble. Don't you dare not stay humble, right? That's the idea. Stay humble. Listen, if anything good has happened around here, it ain't because of us, you guys, okay? It's in spite of us. I mean, seriously, look around. Look at the guy next to you. I mean, <laughs> come on. We're not that good. Guys, let's be honest about it. Think about it. We're not that good. It's not like, well, yeah, we say those things, but really, you know, stay humble. At the same time, don't let your foot off the gas. Like, oh, you know, we're all that now. We arrived, we did this, we did that, we're all that. It's like, no, 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 no. It's no time to coast or sit on your haunches. Not ever. Stay hungry. God's not done. Well, isn't mountain getting a little big? It's like, what? Heaven's too big now? What? I thought hell was getting too big. I mean, no. I mean, so like the Apostle Paul can ride around for 10,000 miles on foot, but we're like, yeah. no, we're going to stay hungry, aren't we? Never let the medals of yesterday's success become like shackles that weigh you down so you can't run the race that God has for us. Because we believe the mission isn't done, God's not done, stay hungry. In fact, we have a little saying around here, we love the past, but we believe that nothing in our past even compares to the future that God has for us. We want to stay hungry for that. Like a shepherd who's got 99 sheep in, but there's one out there. As long as there's one more, we're not done. Stay hungry because God's about to do a new thing. And if we're not humble and we're not hungry, we'll miss it. So stay humble and stay hungry. If we had a life verse over the last 10 or 15 years, this is what it would be. Psalm 118.23. Let's say it together. You look at all this stuff and you're like, wow, something's happening. Let's say it together. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Isn't that a beautiful call? That's a great scripture to just mark down. It's easy to get it flipped and, and make it backwards. Like, look at all this great stuff we did, God, for you. Isn't it marvelous in your eyes? Isn't it funny how we do that sometimes? It's like, no, 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 no. In reality, God's the one who does whatever is good, and we just marvel in a humble posture and say, only God, and then we're hungry for more. Do it again, God, do it again. Now, one way that we can stay humble, or it, it helps us be humble, is when we remember whose church it is. Jesus, when he was speaking to the disciples one time, um, they were like, you know, uh, Jesus says, so who, do who does everyone say I am? And they give all these answers. And then Peter says, but I'll tell you, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him, paraphrasing, and says, bingo. <laughs> and then he goes on to say this, and upon that, upon the foundation stone of what you just said, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says these words, I will build my church. I think that's how he said it. <laughs> to remind us whose church it is. The triumphant church that hell won't prevail against is Jesus' church. Now we're a body, you're a part, you're a part, you're a part, we all got a part, but who's the head? Jesus. He, the Bible also says we're, we're a building, like you're a living stone, you're a living stone. We're all put together, but who's the cornerstone that sets the trajectory for every other one of us? It's Jesus. So we got to remember whose church it is. Here's how that's helpful. When things are going awesome, and sometimes they are, who gets all the credit and the glory and the praise? 
Jesus because it's his church. It's also really handy when things go bad, and sometimes they do. I can't tell you the number of times I just go home at night, and I'm like, oh, man, I gave it my best, but it's a mess. And I just put my head on the pillow, and I'm like, God, you better do something about your church because I'm going to bed. Because I, I can't be here 35 years into ministry, you know, thinking I'm going to solve all this, right? You stay humble and you stay hungry. Remember whose church it is, and it brings out your best. Now, it's, it's crazy to even think about, like, how could we not be humble when you think about how the church even began. Like, if you go to your Bible, it's on Acts chapter 2 is where it tells about it. And it describes this little snapshot of how amazing it was at the beginning of the church. Like, instant megachurch on day one, 3,000 people on the first day of the church. And it says that they're... They're having great relationships with each other. They have a great reputation in the community. They're changing each other's, you know, the community. They're having this amazing experience, and they're growing, and there's awe, and there's all this beautiful stuff. And then it says this at the end of that section, Acts 2, 47. It says, and the Lord added to their number daily. Like every day there was additions to those who were being saved. Once in a while someone will ask me, you know, well, how do you grow a church? And when I feel snarky, I just say, you don't. God does. The Lord added daily. They did all the right stuff, it's true, but it's the Lord who grows the church. Over in Corinth, they were all starting to become enamored with some of the, the leaders of the church. And Paul comes along and he says, it's true I planted this thing and got it launched. And it's true that other guy, Apollos, came and you like the way he teaches and all that. But you're comparing now which is better, Paul or Apollos, and you're missing the whole point, he says. First Corinthians 3, he says, God's been the one all along. is the only one who can make this grow. It's not the one who plants. It's not the one who waters. It's like God grows a church. Stay humble. Stay hungry, but stay humble because it's not about you. It's not about me. And it's the most important thing for a true church. And it's the most important thing. It's not just like a policy we have. Guys, this happens at the grassroots level with you and me, with people who have a humble, like it's a posture we have toward God and one another, toward people you meet, toward your family. Like humility is a beautiful posture, isn't it? And it starts to define or not a person and a community. Pride or humility. You look at Jesus, you want to know what humility looks like? You look at Jesus. How was he born? A baby, nothing more helpless than a dependent baby. To a peasant woman in the middle of nowhere, grows up in obscurity, you know, becomes a carpenter out of sight, and then for three years hangs around with a bunch of carpenters. In ministry, he didn't have a headquarters or a hierarchy, didn't ride around in a suburban, have an entourage or anything like that. No spokesperson, just humble Jesus. Then he stands up to teach one of his first days. And what does he say? Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the meek. Why? He's about to introduce a radical new concept. He says, blessed are the lowly, the humble, the meek. Why? Because, let me tell you something. They're actually the ones who are going to inherit the whole earth. He's talking about a great reversal that happens in God's kingdom. Where all the beat down, lowly, hungry, poor people who always get the shaft but who keep loving God in a humble way are one day 
going to be on top. All the losers win in Jesus' kingdom. He says, just you wait. That's what my kingdom's like. And all those fat cats that you go admiring, those secular God-haters who seem like they're on top, and we think to ourselves, boy, it would be nice to be them. No, 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 Jesus says. Blessed not are those people because they're going to get theirs. It all gets flipped around. Blessed are the meek and the humble and the lowly in heart. For you'll be the ones on top. The great path to greatness is through humility. In fact, Jesus kind of taught another time that he says, you know, part of the reason you're so exhausted and burnt out is that you're trying to do too much as if you're God, like you're trying to solve the world's problems. Some of us are exhausted and we're weary because we're trying to play the part of God. I'm the provider. I'm the protector. I got to fix everything, control everything and everyone. No wonder we're exhausted. It's enough to wear anyone out. And we fall apart. And Jesus says, you don't have to live that way. Matthew 11, he says, why don't you just come to me? Like, humble yourself. You're so weary and burdened. You've been trying to lift the load of life and the universe all by yourself. Instead, would you just humble yourself and say, Lord, I need you. And I'll give you rest. Here, let's trade loads. You give me all that stuff you're trying to carry because you're so proud and big and strong. Just give it to me. And I'll give you mine. Mine's actually really light. And you'll have rest for your soul. Some of us need to just humble ourselves and trade our weariness for his rest. And when we do that, God sees that heart. And he goes, boom, right there, I see it. Now I'm coming for you. I'm coming closer to you. I'm coming to be with you. Because humility draws God's love and grace. Nothing like it. Now, if you struggle with that in your life, you struggle to be a little humble sometimes. Well, we live in a culture that really frowns on it, and it, it, it's almost like if you are humble for a moment, someone's going to step on your neck. So it's like, oh, I can't afford that. And it's not really normal. And if you struggle with it, I want to make you feel better about yourself. Um, this makes me feel a little better. Because the disciples who hung out with Jesus a lot, they really didn't get it either. One of my favorite stories um, is after the disciples are hanging out with Jesus for a while, they're starting to figure out where this is going. Like they can see he's a miracle worker. He really is from God. They know where this is going. He's going to one day be the big dog sitting on the throne in glory. And, he, and so they, they kind of, two of them, the sons of thunder, James and John, they pull Jesus aside one time when the others aren't around. They're like, hey, Jesus, I got an idea. I mean, can we run something by you? He's like, what would you have in mind? He's like, well, you know, when we get to glory and all that stuff, like, we still think you should be in the center throne and all, but you know those seats, one right on your right and left? How about, wouldn't it look great? You got to admit, it'd be pretty fun to have him and me right there, wouldn't it? That'd be cool, right, Jesus? And he's like, Jesus says, you don't have any idea what you're even asking. He says, like, to go up that high as I'm going to, I've got to go down a lot lower than I've even gone now. He's talking about the cross. And he's like, can you guys handle that? Can you drink that cup? They're like, oh, sure, yeah, whatever it takes. They have no idea what they're... Most of us have no idea what real greatness in the kingdom is like because we're so afraid of humbling ourselves. We're propping ourselves up all the time on our own strength. When the other ten disciples got wind of how James and John were jockeying for cabinet positions with Jesus, they were really ticked off. And get this, the reason they're ticked is not because it's like, James and John, you should have been more humble. No, they're, they're ticked because they didn't get there first. And so Jesus 
Mark 10, Jesus called them together and said, you know how those rulers over the, the secular, uh, ungodless Gentiles, they just power up and they muscle up on everyone and they just boss everybody around and they act like they're so large and in charge all the time. And the disciples are like, yeah, you're saying we get to do that next? And then Jesus drops a bomb on all of us in this moment. Mark 10, 43. Jesus says, yeah, I know you see worldly leaders and what it looks like when you're the boss man or the boss woman. He says, not so with you. You want to be my follower? You guys, you got to be different. Instead, if you want to really become great, you got to become like a servant. You want to be first? Become like a slave. Look at me. I'm the son of man for crying out loud. And I didn't, I didn't come to be served, to be great that way. I, I actually came to serve. And I'm your boss. I'm your leader. And we're starting to see here through Jesus' teaching and his example that humility is not like optional equipment for the Christian. It's not like, well, some people are naturally humble and others, I'm just not that way. Jesus is like, no, he commands it, which means it's a choice. It's not like whether you have red hair and freckles or not. It's like every Christian needs to start clothing ourselves with humility. And Jesus doesn't just command it, he models it in beautiful ways so we're drawn toward it and we see the power of it. Like when he comes in, the last week of his life, he comes into Jerusalem. The appropriate sort of mount for a mighty leader in those days would have been a white stallion, a horse. But when Jesus comes to town, he sends a signal because he's a king who's riding what? On the back of a tired old borrowed donkey. Here comes the king. What kind of king is this? Philippians 2 says, one that lowered himself, emptied himself from heaven till he became human. Think of it, like you becoming an ant or less. But then lower than that, a servant, and lower than that, to death, and lower than that, the worst kind of death you could find on a cross. Everything about his life signaled humility. And so this is why, this is why that lowering is what makes God so great. That's what happens. The reversal works, which is why when people really encounter God, do you know how they react? They're filled instantly. When you really see God, you are filled instantly with humility. People in the Bible, every, almost everyone who finally really saw God or Jesus, they, they dropped, you know. The very first people to visit Jesus, who? The wise men, great rich guys. From, the, from long, long, long distance, what do they do? The Bible says they dropped, they bowed low, and they worshiped. The word literally means they kissed toward out of obeisance and reverence. The man who had a horrible disease of leprosy, he comes up, what does he say? Does he say, Jesus, this isn't fair. Why, I don't understand, why is this happening to me? He doesn't say any of that. You know what? He humbly bows before Jesus, and he says, Lord, I know you could heal me, and if you're willing, I would really appreciate it. And that humility opened a floodgate through which the grace of Jesus poured and healed that man. Mark 5 tells about not a low-life leper, but a big dog synagogue ruler, an important guy with lots of people who just, he could snap his fingers, but this one is broken and humbled because his kid, his daughter, got sick and she died. And there's nothing like your family when you can't fix it to humble you. When you would give anything to turn it around or help it or heal it, but you can't. And some of us know what that's like because our most close moments with Jesus have sometimes been when we dryly 
We're driven to our knees in humility because of a family. And in those moments, like that man, we learn that Jesus' heart flows toward humility. It flows through the channel of humility. The more you puff yourself up, the more you push God away. I couldn't help it. This, this last week, you know, that whole Super Bowl thing, there was a moment after or during the game, the height of the game, when Travis Kelsey, who was a player for the Kansas City Chiefs, came up and he had a moment with his head coach. This is a Hall of Fame coach, Andy Reid, standing on the sideline running the game, and Travis Kelsey's like, you took me out. I, you should do this. I want to do that. Blah, 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 blah. And that was in his sober moments. <laughs> we saw a picture of what was inside his heart. Now, he later apologized and said, I shouldn't have done it, but we saw it. Just like, and then I thought to myself, well, I'd like to rip on Travis Kelsey, but then I realized, you know, that posture, that's a posture. And I thought, how many times is that essentially how it must feel when I power up on someone? Or I wonder if God ever wants to, just like Andy is right there, just close his eyes, because God opposes the proud. You get up in his face like that sometimes. I don't know. You see what I'm saying? It's a posture. And we get to decide how much blessing and presence of God we have in our life by whether we're willing to humble ourselves and live less like that Travis Kelsey moment and more like that humble man whose kid was sick. You want more God in your life? Humble yourself before the Lord. More blessing, more good, it's all, it's all based on humility. So come humbly. Because pride is what repels God. It pushes God away. And humility invites him. He must increase and we must decrease. Here's the principle. I'll put it on the screen. It goes like this. If you insist on like lifting yourself, like you're going to get it done, you're going to do it, and you're going to make sure everyone knows you're important and all that, that's pride. And you will lift yourself a little bit, but you're quickly going to hit the lid of your own limitations. Like as high as you can go, that's as high as you're going to go. But when you, if you humble yourself before God, now God can now step in and he can lift you and now the sky's the limit on how high you go. Does that make sense? Here's what uh, James 4 says. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Instead, what we want to do is be prideful in front of everyone and lift ourselves up and we don't even think about God. But he says, humble yourself before the Lord. God can't lift you up until you humble yourself. 1 Peter 5 says it this way. In the same way, you who are younger should submit yourselves to your elders. What's he saying? He's saying humble yourself and accept the fact that there's some people who are older, wiser, smarter, and better than you, and you could learn from them. Humble yourself. But he's not just talking to young people. He next goes on to say, all of you, all of us, clothe yourself with what? Humility. Because, he quotes from Proverbs here, God hates, opposes, stands against Closes his eyes like Andy Reid against the proud. But what does he do? He shows favor and grace and openness toward the humble. So humble yourself. It's a reminder you make a decision here. Don't wait till you're humiliated. Humble yourself before God's mighty hand. And in due time, he goes on to say, that's why you can cast your cares on him. Because you know he cares for you. Instead of you trying to control everything and pridefully do it yourself. No, just... Humble yourself and cast your cares on God. Trade your load with, for him, with his. You give him your heavy one and he'll give you the light one. But the more you lift yourself up and push yourself up and try to presume and pretend and all that, like, you know, 
the more you push God away. If you lift yourself, you'll hit the lid of your own limitations. If you humble yourself, God can lift you up. I don't need you, God. I got this. Yeah. We're just kind of saying, well, I, we're saying, God, I don't need you. But humility unlocks the floodgates. So here's one of the things we've got to figure out. The problem we have in our culture is that we're afraid of humility because we confuse it with weakness. And there are certain cultures and places we go that people will treat you like, oh, if they show a sign of weakness, we're so afraid that we're going to be taken advantage of. We think meekness is weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness with Jesus in your life is a superpower. I mean, it unleashes, it's a strength. There's an old quote, better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. Because a warrior, you see, if you summon him for battle, doesn't matter where he is, he's got his sword, even if it's chosen to be sheathed at that moment. And meekness is like that. Humility is like that. It's, it's like I, you have access to all kinds of power, but you, don't, you can restrain from using it because you have a greater vision and a greater trust in a greater God. So when someone lies about you at work, okay, now we're getting real. Someone trash talks you at school or rakes you over the coals in the neighborhood or online, what do you do? Well, first of all, stop commenting on everything online. Nobody cares anyway. But what do you do? Well, if you're weak and you're worried about who you are and all that stuff, you don't have any real strength. You're going to fire back. You're going to blaze them and flame them and stand up for yourself and argue and justify and get sucked into that whole vortex and make sure everyone knows how right you are and how strong and good you are. But if you're strong enough to be humble, you'll just step back and say, my identity is not at stake here with this bozo. I'm going to let God step in. I'm serious. Like the next time you are attacked online and you wonder, should I fire back? What should I do? Go to Psalm 37, verse 7, which says, you know what? Just be silent and go before the Lord and wait for him. And don't you be agitated by what anyone else is saying, by the one who appears to be so important. The great reversal. Read the whole psalm sometime. He's talking about the Lord's going to take care of all these other folk. You don't have to do that. Your job is to trust in the Lord, commit your ways to him, humble yourself before him, and let him sort everything out. Wouldn't that be something? And if you do that, see, here's the secret. If you get flamed and then you step into that situation and try to fix it and take it by the horns and watch this, I'm going to do this, God just steps back. He goes, okay, looks like you got it. I'm out. You don't need me. You insisted on exalting yourself. Good luck. I hope you get real high. But when you step back from a situation like that and you turn over the Lord and you surrender it and say, God, this is not my battle to fight. I know who I am in you. I'm not going to try to just puff myself up here. I'm going to humble myself. And you invite God in. Then God goes, oh, now he steps in and he deals with the situation and God always knows what's best. God opposes the proud. And we are in a humble place. He can step in. Now, Let's get practical about this. You know, this principle of how humility, when we're at our lowest sometimes, when we're dependent and needy and not in control of everything, are the very moments when God's grace shows up the most. Isn't it true? We're just taught to try to learn to live that way. 
Now, in our history at Mountain, we've got a lot of positive stories that are great to tell. But we've got some, some ones that are harder to talk about. And if we're going to celebrate 200 years, we've got to acknowledge 1983. 1983 were dark days for our church because there was a disagreement in our church about a pastor and what should be done. And some thought he should be dismissed and others disagreed. And it became very contentious. So much so that about half of our 300 members left along with two other pastors and started another church. And it was a horribly difficult time. We had lasted through the Civil War and now we had one of our own. Really hard. Families didn't always see eye to eye. Relationships were damaged. The plea for unity was not met in our own midst. And so on the heels of this horribly traumatic event, in this broken, humbled church, we had our annual Faith Promise Rally. Faith Promise Rally in those days was a way we raised funds for missions. We had several people of our church that we had sent to the mission field. The Wells and the Townsends and the Browns had gone to Kenya and Mexico City, and we had promised that we were going to support them. They were our families, and you go to the field, we were supporting them. Faith Promise was the way we did it. It was giving like over and above our regular tithes and offerings, but it was like I don't know, by faith I anticipate that God will deliver the promise to me and, and we will make these commitments to our mission's budget. And so we had come up with a goal and it was bold and it was big and it was beautiful and we set it and we announced it and then the split happened. And so all of a sudden half of us were gone. So the question is, what do we do now? Like, do we just shelve the whole thing? Do we call the missionaries and say we can't? Do we tell them we're going to reduce the goal? What do we do? And we made a significant decision in our humbled state, and that was to go ahead with Faith Promise Sunday and keep the goal exactly where it was and just see what God might do. And everybody went into that Sunday morning with a lot of fear and trepidation. We had a, a big thermometer back in Walker Chapel, that one with the steeple up here on the hill, had a, had a thermometer with a ribbon on it. You could pull the little thing and the ribbon would go up and down based on the commitments and the gifts and everything. And everyone made their gifts and their commitments and their pledges and a bunch of people took them in the back room and started counting up and we were all singing hymns out there waiting and wondering, sitting on pins and needles until one of the elders came out, stood up in front. We stopped singing, we listened. He cleared his throat and wiped his eyes and he announced that the new total exceeded the original goal and people erupted and applauded and cheered and hugged and cried and stood on the pews and said praise God and it was a historic day because not just because we met a goal and kept the missionaries on the field but because we knew you know what God is with us and out of that humility we found strength we've never had and from that day forward, we never looked back and if you want to graph the growth of Mountain Christian Church you know when it started up and to the right right then right then. And that's why to this very day, we've got to remember, we don't have to be broken or humiliated to let God do what only God can do. We're going to humble ourselves. We're going to stay humble so that we can stay hungry so he can do it again and do it again and do it again. We're going to lift him up and let that be the story that's repeated again and again. Do you know a time in your life when humility was the very avenue through which God came and rescued you? So, 
We're going to do it as a church. Now do it in your life too, right? Humility, stay humble in your own life. Remember, somebody said this way, humility is not thinking less of yourself, like, oh, I'm so stupid, I'm so bad, I'm no good, I'm a nobody. That's, that's not humility. That's just, believe it or not, another form of pride because it's all about you. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Philippians 2 says it this way, what if we just did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Like, but rather in humility, I actually considered my kids, my wife, my friends, my workmates as more significant than me even. Just think of myself less. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others and have this mind among you, the, the same one that Jesus had when he lowered himself right out of heaven down into our midst. Humility. It's a choice, it's a posture, it's an attitude, and it's hard to embrace. But you know how I think we learn the power of humility more than any other way? Is simply like seeing it in someone's life and seeing how beautiful it is. You know what I mean? You know anybody like that? I, I think of Martha Rufinock. Most of you probably don't know that name, which is a shame. But Martha, Martha and her husband Bill lived and served among this church for decades. Martha just joined Bill in glory recently. We had her funeral last week. They were part of those bedrock families of Mountain. They came to Mountain in 1875, the Rufinox did. There are six generations of Rufinox baptized in this church. It's crazy. Martha, she was just a humble gal, grew up on a, you know, a, a a farm somewhere in Virginia, music teacher, taught in the schools, taught piano lessons to hundreds of people in this church just one at a time, you know, traveled with a quartet and played the piano and played for the choir, led the choir, all this kind of stuff. Just she never thought of herself as anything great, but Jesus' standards of greatness, though, she was a giant. Someone asked her, you know, Martha, could you help out uh, with counting the offering for a bit? We need a little help. She's like, sure. Fifty years later, she's like, you know, I'm ready for someone else. 50 years. She walked out of here with a few other friends to count the offering. Nobody saw it. Nobody knew it. But she was reliable and trustworthy. And You see, some of the most important things that you never see are, are the very things that make the world go round. You know how to develop somebody into a deep character of maturity? It's like a dark room. In the old days, you used to take a, a picture, stick it in a dark room. Don't let the light in. Don't overexpose it. Just leave it in the dark where no one can see it, and it'll develop. And people are the same way. Out of the limelight, in jobs that seem insignificant, humble, people develop like that and become beautiful People In doing what nobody wanted to do, Martha became what everyone wants to be. The reversal already happened in her life. Do you see it? Do you know anybody like that? I wonder if anybody's saying that about you or me. One of the things I loved about Martha the most in this humility thing is a job that she took on. Martha sharpened the golf pencils in the back of the chairs that you're sitting in in your Mountain Road campus right now. 
Every single week, she'd straighten them, sharpen them, replace them, fix them, put the cards in. You'd come in here at all odd hours. There was Martha all by herself, one by one, chair by chair, row by row, day by day, week by week, year in and year out. Martha, here by herself, just humbly serving. There's another woman by the name of Lynn who had a, a, some incidents that happened in her upbringing. And... It had really hurt her deeply, and she felt chased away from God and the church. But decades later, she, she felt somehow enough safe around Mountain that she tiptoed in, and then she met Martha. And Martha said, why don't you help me sharpen pencils? And now you'd see them together. There they go. Hi, ladies. Thank you, Lynn told us later. After all those years of feeling so far from God, I never felt closer to God than when I was with Martha sharpening pencils. I don't know what it means for you, but I suspect all of us need to develop a little more. We need probably some humility and the strength of this church is not the people on the stage. It's people who, like Jesus, are willing to lower themselves and participate in the great reversal and say that I will, I will do whatever it takes if it lifts Jesus up because in so doing, you yourself will get lifted up. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And we need a church full of humble, hungry servants. Can I just give you one practical Real tangible takeaway that has been helpful in my life that might help you too before we close. Can I do that? I just, for some time now, the elders and some of the staff and I have adopted a practice. I'm, I'm, I've re-engaged with it for Lent. It's going pretty well. I got it out of a book by Justin Early called The Common Rule. And he's got lots of great practices in there. But the one that has had the most profound effect on me, you're going to think it's crazy. You're going to think it's silly. But here it is. You know what it is? It's kneeling prayer. Like just kneeling prayer as you begin the day, instead of just like stumbling with your eyes closed to the bathroom, the first thing is you just kind of swivel your haunches around and onto the floor and your elbows on the bed. It's not a long prayer. It's a short prayer. But it begins by orienting our mind and our bodies humbly toward God and welcoming him into our lives and our minds, our consciousness. First thing, before phone, even before the toilet. That's why it's a short prayer. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how we always wake up with some kind of prayer or thought on our minds and our lips? I mean, if you're in high school, it might be, why does first period start so early? Why does the bus have to, you know, it's all that stuff. Or maybe later it's like, please don't let anyone find out what happened last night. Might be the first thought on your mind. You're in college, it might be, please don't make it matter that I'm skipping class right now. But there's always something that is kind of the first thought when you wake up. Isn't it true? I should have gone to bed earlier. I wish I would have woke up earlier. Or why are the kids up so earlier? Why does that garbage truck have to rattle those cans like that? It, oh. Why won't he get the dog out? Why am I always so tired? Oh, my gosh, today's the day. Oh, I got to get it done. I got to do it. I got to go. Oh. I shouldn't have watched that. I shouldn't have eaten that. I shouldn't have done that. I wish I wouldn't have said that. Isn't it amazing how often our first thoughts are like this? 
We get up in the morning and it's like something that we need to do or something that we wish we hadn't done and that's our opening prayer, feeling guilty or anxious about the day. And notice, it's all about me. It's all about my performance. It's like, it's like legalism, which hangs on the belief that everything comes down to how well I do. And that's whether God will love me and people will love me is how well I do today. And the gospel says, that's a horrible way to start your day because the mercy of God, the grace of God is new and fresh every morning. Why don't we start with it? Why don't we humble ourselves before God? The gospel says he loves you not because of what you did, but in spite of what you've done. So instead of this negative prayer cooking around in our brains, anybody relate to that? What if we just had a habit of God-centered prayer, start on our knees, it wakes your body up and says something's going on. When you kneel, your posture wakes your brain up. And, and, the, and the pride just has to let go. Instead of opening our day with, oh crud, oh no, I'm late, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Instead, we just say something like, thank you, Lord. Good morning, Lord. Help me, Lord. Well, guard, guide my kids today. Help me at work. Walk with me. Instead of having your phone and the news and the notifications and all that stuff convince us with the mantras, you're already behind. You check your email. Did you hear what that politician said? Did you hear what the celebrity said? You know, did you miss Fallon last night? Who cares? It's all just a bid to shape our minds and distract us from the one we are meant to humbly bow before, knowing he will lift us up to face another day. So what if you just tried it? I dare you. Just kneeling prayer. Try it for this week. And the same God who spoke order and beauty into creation at the beginning of time can speak order and creation into your day. Humble yourself at the beginning of the day. And if you're up for it, if you're an overachiever, why not end your day the same way instead of just scrolling yourself to sleep? What if we just put our head back on our pillow and felt that thing come around us as if it were the very arms of God saying, I got this, I got you, I got your kids. I got the things that are worrying you. You can humble yourself and it's a release and you take his light load as you turn the universe back into his hands and go to sleep. Kneel for prayer. Stay hungry, but stay humble. So I, I thought maybe it would be a good way for us to end our time together by just sharing communion together because there's no be more beautiful way to symbolize the humility of Jesus. And, and I think about that time when it was just the night before he was going to die that he's with his disciples they're together in an upper room, and he did a very unusual thing. He got up from the table. No one else had bothered to observe the custom of foot washing. And so Jesus takes off his outer clothes. They're like, oh, no, he didn't. And they're like, yes, he did. And he put on the, the clothing of a servant, and he bent down with a basin and towel, and he went around to every one of them and washed that dust and that dung that had caked on between their toes, the servant, the master of the universe, serving them. Peter says, not me. I'm not letting you wash my feet. And, Peter, and Jesus says, you know what? I need to do this. And then Jesus says, Peter says, then wash all of me. We come to communion. It's a moment like that where the one who is the king is serving us through his body and his blood. And some of us are uncomfortable with that. It's like, no, I got it. And he's like, are you sure? We, shall, we ought to come just like, wash all of me. 
these symbols are symbols of his own humiliation and humbling himself. No one took his life. He gave it. He gave it because he knew he would be exalted to the place that is above every name where he is now. So the bread, all who are followers of Jesus Christ are invited to partake of the bread. The bread, a symbol of his body broken as he humbled himself on a cross. Humble yourself before the Lord as you partake. Even as we do, the Lord begins to come in through the avenues of our own humility to give us more grace, and we need more grace. We say, Jesus, I need you. As we drink the cup, which symbolizes his, hum his humility. Come, Lord Jesus, wash all of me. Jesus stood up after washing feet, and he said, you know what I've done here? If I'm your teacher and I'm your Lord and I've washed feet, I had one lesson left. I had one night before I'm going to go to the cross, and this is what I've chosen to teach you. Now go wash feet. Go make disciples. Stay hungry, but stay humble while you do it. Stay humble. Stay hungry. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace and your patience with us as we sometimes, like the disciples, want to be around you for the wrong reasons. But just help us to humble ourselves like you did. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.